The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. How do you think about your emotions? Do you manage them or do they manage you? You know, we talk a lot about emotions on Hello Monday. We've examined the ways in which ignoring them can lead to burnout. That's not good. We've had multiple meditation coaches share tools with us to help us get distance from them. And negotiation experts share tips for how to prevent them from sabotaging us. Today's guest is going to introduce a framework for how to harness them to be a stronger leader to motivate our teams, and generally to be more powerful in our lives. Dr. Julia DeGangi is a neuropsychologist. She's a clinical psychologist with a special expertise in the brain. Her early background is in treating people who've experienced trauma, helping them to build resilience. Her recent book is called Energy Rising, The Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power. Today, we're going to learn how our very human reactions to our emotions can sometimes derail us and how we can make better use of our emotional energy to power our lives. Here's Dr. Julia DeGangi. So emotions are quite literally, so I'm not speaking metaphysically, I'm not speaking metaphorically, neurobiologically, what your emotions most fundamentally are, are neuroelectrical impulses in your brain communicated with your body that then drive your behavior. So I think a really useful model for thinking about emotions that I can think is so clarifying and so powerful is our emotions are the Google Maps of our lives. They are literally telling us Proceed in this relationship. At the next juncture, immediately turn left and leave the relationship. Stay in the job. Proceed on course. And what happens to a lot of us, instead of paying attention to this profoundly scientific and also sacred neurobiological guidance system, we're out there like our system is telling us turn left at the right next intersection and we're going right, we're going crooked. And if you do this for enough time, you will invariably find yourself in a lot of pain. Yeah. And by pain, I mean having this feeling like my life doesn't feel like how I believe my life should feel. I feel burnt out. I feel exhausted. I feel unsettled. I feel anxious. So in order to kind of come into our human wholeness, well, there's no way to return to our wholeness without understanding our emotional lives. I'd be what ha- do you mean by return to our wholeness? Mm-hmm. I just want to pause there a second. I, that, that's, a, that's a sort of big statement to begin with. I'm going to make a lot of big statements. So, so <laughs> I think at the core, there's really only one or two questions that people are asking me. So I do a lot of work in human relational systems. Sort of my expertise is emotion and relationships. I do a lot of work in corporate settings. In fact, I just got back from a big private equity event where I was talking about the neuroscience of extraordinary teams. So at the core, what people are asking me is, how do I make my life feel good? Okay. And sometimes people will say satisfied. Sometimes they'll say confident. Sometimes they'll say happy. But at the core, it's how do I make my life feel good? 
So to really understand this, you have to understand that your brain has basically three engines that's driving you through your life, okay? You have an engine of feeling, you have an engine of acting or behaving, and you have an engine of thinking. Pretty straightforward, right? Okay. So when I say these things are engines, I mean they really require neurocognitive, neurobiological energy. I mean, our life is only energy at its its fundamental core. So if I was going to do something else in my like say I wanted to make a plane, okay? Okay. And I was like, Jesse, I have a great idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to put three engines on this plane to make it super powerful, super effective. And I'm going to have a couple of engines going in one direction, and then I'm going to rig the machine so that another engine flies in the exact opposite direction. That sounds terrible. You're right. <laughs> so you need to like get yourself straight. So you're saying these three engines of mine uh, are all working toward different ends. What happens to a lot of us, and this is this is one of the, the main premises of energy rising, is that we are dividing our energy from our energy, and it's creating lots of inefficiency in our lives. Let me give you clear examples that will really resonate. Okay. So our emotional system, our Google Maps of our life says, you know what? I really want to speak up. I feel like there's something on my heart, on my mind. What do we then use our engine of behaving to do? We keep our mouth shut. We say, you know what? I am so exhausted. I feel so exhausted. I feel burnt out. I feel like I cannot take one more thing. What do I do? I overwork. I overgive. I overfunction. I do not rest. I mean, I think about that, Dr. Deganji, and I think, well, the truth is that I often have competing wants. I want to make my opinion known because I believe that I'm right. A competing want is to be understood within the context of this organization as somebody who follows the leader, and the leader has a different opinion. Those those wants are in competition with each other. A hundred percent. I have a lot to say about this, too. So one of, one of the main points I make in Energy Rising, too, is I think it's in the first code where I talk about this idea of pick a more powerful pain. Mm. So what everyone on the planet is doing is they are trying to avoid pain by virtue of what pain is the only thing that your brain is consistently trying to avoid because by definition of what pain is, it does not feel good. Mm-mm. Now, the brain actually at a reflexive kind of pr- pretty primitive level treats all pain the same. So for example, if I put my hand on a hot stove and it burns me, I will yank my hand away. That's an incredibly adaptive response. Yep. But what happens in our emotional lives is we say we want to speak up or we want to have a difficult conversation or we want to, like, take a risk and quit our job and start a new business or whatever. You can imagine a million of these examples. Yep. And instead of going for it, we avoid it. Well, why do we avoid it? We avoid it because what we're doing at the most fundamental neurobiological level is we are trying to avoid pain. This, as someone who's worked with trauma for 20 years or 40 years, depending on how you want to look at it, (laughs) trying to avoid pain is a fool's errand. You would have better luck trying to get gravity to make things fall up. So the most empowering question of our life, honest to God, is to say, in a world that guarantees me pain, it's just the way the human experience is wired, what is the pain that empowers me? So let's go back to your example. Say you're somebody who's like, I really want to do well in this organization, but the leader is doing things that feel totally out of integrity to me. And I feel sick. I kind of toss and turn at night. I'm spending a lot of energy venting to my spouse about this. 
what is the more powerful pain? I think it's so clarifying, and I believe that clarity is the foundation of all power. If I can say there is no get-out-of-jail-free card here, do I choose to keep keeping my mouth shut, which obviously has a painful cost, or do I say... I understand that there might be some consequences that don't feel good to me, but I am going to do the more powerful thing. And in this case, it is to speak up. Right. And when you can articulate that there are two types of pain and you're going to have to choose one, it puts you in a place where you have a lot more agency, huh? So much more agency. This is kind of another sort of wild statement. I would suggest to you that the greatest problem on the planet is avoidance of emotional pain. I mean, emotional pain is awful. You use that example of burning your hand. You know, I burn my hand. It's awful. It hurts. Then it stops hurting. And it's the weirdest thing about physical pain. Kind of mostly forget it afterward. But I can still tell you about the time in sixth grade that Michelle hurt my feelings, yes. right? Yes. So that's so that's so the way the, the neural system, the brain system is organized is like we encode emotional pain in different ways than we encode physical pain. So the body really keeps this sort of emotional junk stuck in us. But the thing that's, I I hope that your listeners hear because it is so, I have so much energy for this work, is that it's actually the chronic avoidance of feeling uncomfortable feelings that frankly, your nervous system is designed over 150 million years to feel that is actually creating the majority of our pain. One of the things that I think can be really clarifying for people to understand is all anxiety disorders are is about is about pain avoidance. Hmm. So if you think about social anxiety, if you think about PTSD, if you think about OCD, what these things are really actually about is it's about avoidance of the thing that I think is going to cause me pain. But in my failure to pick a more powerful pain, I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding, and it creates so much havoc. I don't know if it's useful. I can certainly share a story if Please that's useful Please share a story. I mean, I'm so like invested in thinking about how true this feels for me that I'm like forgetting my next question here, Dr. Good. So I was working with this combat veteran who came in for treatment with PTSD, and he had been back from his deployment for many years. That's a very important piece of the story. So I say, well, tell me what's been going on for you. And he's like, well, I don't drive anymore because my trauma happened in the context of a convoy. And he's back in, you know, suburban USA. I don't drive anymore. I don't go to public places. I don't go to restaurants. I don't really work because I'm getting in too many altercations with people. And the the most painful, excruciating part of all was that he was estranged from his family. PTSD makes interpersonal relationships. It can make them quite difficult. There can be a lot of irritability, a lot of anger, a lot of fear. I mean, it's such a crushing, crushing disorder for a lot of us. Yeah. So... I say, well, this is really interesting because your primary strategy has been, let me avoid all of these things that trigger the memory. What is the memory? The memory is ultimately a feeling. I'm trying to avoid all these feelings inside of my body. So I've I've shrunk my life and shrunk my life and shrunk my life. And even though on on an intuitive level, it seemed like it was going to be a really good strategy, it's actually killing me. Yeah. So I say, I have some good news. This is a really predictable pattern. And I think this is very calming to people because sometimes when we are in pain, we feel like no one in the world has been here before. So there can be a calming to be like, this is how this thing goes. The second thing I say is I have great news. We have a tremendous amount of neuroscientific, neuropsychological evidence. And the frontline, most evidence-based treatments for these kinds of things is to start talking about the emotional experiences over and over and over. So we're going to talk about it in session. 
and then you're going to record yourself and you're going to go home and listen to it over and over and over and over again. And I he's mean, like, it, I'm sorry, that sounds awful, Dr. Takaji. <laughs> totally. So, right, so he's like, you know, they, they, they pay you to say this shit? Like, did you not hear me? Like, I just told you, like, that's the opposite, right? So he is, you know, incredibly courageous. So he says, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. At week 12, week 12, okay, remember now he's been back for many, many years. He comes into my office and he's like, Doc, I can't do this anymore. So I'm like, sit down. Tell me what's going on. He takes the phone. He kind of wiggles it in my face. And he's like, I cannot listen to this recording one more time. And I'm like, why not? And he was like, every time I listen to it, I fall asleep. The charge is gone. The charge is gone. And the only reason, the only reason I get so excited to say this because I think it's so powerful, is that he was willing to feel feelings he had historically refused to feel. The premise of energy rising is simple. That every single thing you want in this lifetime is on the other side of those feelings you keep refusing to feel. If you want more self-confidence, you must come into a new relationship with the energy of doubt. If you want more peace, you need a new relationship with the energy of uncertainty. You want more intimacy or connection. Paradoxically enough, you need a new relationship with the energy of rejection. We're going to take a quick break here. Stick around for more with Dr. Julia DeGanji. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Right before the break, Dr. Daganji mentioned pathways to dealing with tricky emotions and getting the things we want. She suggested, for example, if we want peace, we do well to examine our relationship to uncertainty But here's the thing. I really don't like uncertainty. I detest it, truly. It's uncomfortable. In an office setting, it's unsettling for teams. So how do we manage it? Here, once again, is Dr. Julia DeGanji. I don't think there's anyone on the planet who's like, I just adore all forms of uncertainties. And this is because 
your brain is quite literally allergic to uncertainty, okay? So I'll tell you about an experiment that will really kind of clarify this for people. This is not my experiment, but you know, certain scientists have run this experiment. They bring people into the lab and they put them in a condition and they say, okay, we're gonna hook you up to this electrical shock machine. As the name would suggest, like it does not feel good to be electrocuted. It's very painful. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna put you in this condition and the brain in the the computer's gonna count down five, four, three, two, one. And when it gets to zero, you're definitely getting a shock. In the second condition, the computer's gonna count down five, four, three, two, one. And when it gets to zero, you may or may not get a shock. People statistically prefer to be in the condition where they are absolutely certain they are going to get electrocuted. I totally get that. You know, I have a son who just turned five and he's kind of an anxious guy. And if you were to say to him, hey, if you hit your sister, there will be a consequence. Maybe the consequence will be no TV tonight. He will immediately go hit his sister because holding the uncertainty of maybe I will hit her and maybe I won't is too big. That's such a beautiful insight. I mean, a very powerful <laughs> parenting insight. But it doesn't just extend to five-year-olds. I think that's also true about the way that my colleagues interact with each other, myself included. We resist the uncertainty of not knowing how things are going to turn out. Well, so, so let's go back to the interpretation of the story. So I think there's a super, several super important messages from this. The first is that when people will describe human behavior, there's like, okay, the people in that experiment are being so irrational, these kind of like rational models of human behavior. There's nothing irrational about that. Your brain is the most exquisite machine on the planet. Yeah. What your brain is communicating to you, and we have the choice to live life on reality's terms or reject it, but what the brain is telling you truthfully is that there are conditions in our lives where the weight of emotional uncertainty is quite literally more painful than physical pain. Mm -hmm. So we need to have reverence for the truth of our life and how they unfold. Yeah. The second thing is like, okay, well, then if that's true, we, we get to sort of clarify what is uncertainty doing to our life? What, what our kind of reflexive reaction to uncertainty is, is it's actually these things that we try to do to protect ourselves and they actually injure us profoundly. So I'm feeling uncertain, and in order to manage the horrible way my body feels, I start to overwork, overexplain, overfunction, overcommunicate, overgive, overdo, overappease. So I, I call all of these things the overs. Now, here is this wonderful, wonderful paradox that I've learned from being an anxiety expert. It sounds like the opposite of uncertainty should be certainty. Linguistically, it's like, okay, the opposite of uncertainty should be certainty. So let me try very hard in my life to create more certainty. Yep. What actually ends up happening is, was, is when we get obsessive about certainty, it actually makes us more anxious. Hmm. So think about that for a second. I don't like the way uncertain, the energy of uncertainty feels in my body. It makes me feel anxious. So I'm going to now start to overdo, overfunction, overwork, overthink, overanalyze to try to what? Create certainty. But it's actually kind of this obsessive drive to create certainty that actually paradoxically makes us more stressed out. In her book, Dr. DeGangi talks about rewriting our source code. 
I think about this as reviewing the stories we tell ourselves and choosing to tell ourselves different stories. Stories that we believe, of course. That sounds easy, right? Not so much. According to Dr. Deganji, in childhood, we're making more than a million neural connections every single second. And those connections give us our early understanding of how the world works for us. So how the heck do we rewrite all of that? The best way to think about the brain is as a pattern detection machine. So we're running off these old patterns. Well, the most fundamental pattern of the brain is an emotional pattern. So I might have a pattern that started in childhood that's something like, people don't really like me. People don't really like me. People don't really like me. Or nobody ever listens to me. Nobody ever listens to me. Nobody ever listens. So you see, you get how it's like a very kind of this, this patterned thing because the brain runs on emotional patterns. So they're very simple, but very powerful. So what tends to happen to us is we put ourselves in new situations. We will change our jobs or we will change our relationships. And we might get a, a spike for, I don't know, six weeks, maybe even six months. But unless you work at the level of the emotional pattern, you I promise you, you will return to your emotional baseline. Yep. This is why people will try to change jobs or change careers or change relationships. And everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah, that is so true. So what we need to be able to do is to say, let me work at the level of my own emotional pattern. When we fall into pain in our lives, we often make this mistake of over-focusing on the situation. Mm-hmm. The reason I feel bad is because I didn't like the way Jim spoke to me in Monday's meeting. The reason I feel bad is because what this person said on a Facebook post. The reason I feel bad is because how my husband spoke to me at dinner the other night. So it's these very situation by situation by situations, okay? If we can say, let me just for one second without judgment say, what is the emotional pattern that connects all these things? And maybe it's people reject me, mm-hmm. Okay. My work then is to say, and this is such a game changer, let me just without judgment ask the question. If I'm saying people reject me, people don't listen to me, let me at least ask the question, what are the ways in which I reject myself and do not listen to myself? (laughs) Okay, well, I I was really exhausted all week and I overworked. Mm -hmm. My body was like really fatigued and I just... I just hustled and grinded even more. I really wanted connection with my spouse, but instead of using my voice, I kind of got passive aggressive and started shouting about the dishes. We are having a moment in terms of mental health, which is very exciting for me. So I've kind of watched this conversation evolve over 40 years. It's awesome that we are talking about psychological safety in the ways that we're talking about psychological safety, okay? There's Mm -hmm. absolutely no question whatsoever that the brain needs safety. Yep which is another form of safety and certainty at the neurologic level are very similar, okay? But here's the piece that people are missing. Is it going to matter if the entire world is safe to me so long as I am willing to be dangerous to myself? If I'm the one that says, I will only keep my mouth shut until you give me permission to speak, I will only rest when you signal it. You don't know my body, but I got to wait for you to somehow signal that it's okay for me to rest. You're the only person that can tell me I can speak up. Even in those moments when I get it, and I hope we all get it, there's a part of me that unconsciously knows the only reason I got it is because they gave it to me. If I am someone who will not self-advocate, not in an aggressive way, not in a shouting way, but in a powerful, pure way, I understand my limits. I understand my boundaries. I understand my need for expression. I understand my need for rest. 
That is the moment when I am set free. Let me loop this back to our uncertainty conversation. The opposite of uncertainty is not certainty. The opposite of uncertainty is self-trust. Right. That no matter what happens to me out there, I'm going to be okay because the idea of the energy of worthiness is inalienable. Yeah. So so just to close the loop here, there's a, there's a little piece that I think needs connecting. Go for it. Which is that this, this sort of fundamental assertion that I, Jesse, am worthy gets clouded by all this emotional residue I have that starts layering atop itself early in my life. Uh-huh. And unless I do the work of articulating, naming, and cleaning up that emotional residue and ultimately taking the charge off of it, I won't be able to get to the point where I understand my own worthiness and thus the point where I can be truly powerful in the world and feel better. I think you nailed it. The human biology, the body, the system, the nervous system is brilliantly designed, okay? Your body knows what to do with waste. You eat food, you pass it. You take an oxygen, you release carbon dioxide as waste. Every 27 days, your skin cells go. You have foreign invaders in your immune system. Your immune system knows how to get rid of them. There is something singular about the experience of emotional garbage. So we have a feeling in our bodies that we don't like. However it kind of manifests, we have a sensation we don't like. Right. And instead of just letting the energy move, we don't even have to be like that creative about it. What we end up doing is we use the volition of the, of the mind to shove it down, shove it down. Don't think about it. Distract it. Watch 20 episodes of Love is Blind on Netflix. Keep scrolling on the phone. Shove it down, shove it down, shove it down. You do that for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. The result is quite mathematical. People love to say our emotions are so complex. They're not yeah. complex. There's a, there's a very simple logic to them. Right. They're a very primitive, they're the most primitive, raw, universal form of humu- human communication, okay? Right. Is you do that, you shove those emotions down, that energy down for long enough, you become emotionally constipated. Yeah. You're just, you're totally congested. And then when somebody cuts you off at a stop sign or God forbid somebody puts four pumps instead of three pumps in your latte at Starbucks, you are pissed off this way sideways till next Sunday instead of being able to respond with the, the clarity and the presence of the deep intelligence that we have as human beings. That was Dr. Julia Deganji. Her book, Energy Rising, is out now. I found this conversation really provoking. I had a lot of thoughts afterwards, but there were three big ideas that I think I'll hold on to. And the first is that Dr. Deganji says that our brains run on these three engines, feeling, thinking, and action. And we run into some trouble because sometimes we try to send these engines in really different directions. It's sort of like the worst plane ever. When that happens, it's hard to go anywhere. Okay, number two, one of the most basic impulses that we have is to avoid pain of any kind, physical and emotional. At a neurological level, it kind of all feels the same. Unfortunately for us, it's basically impossible to avoid pain. Life doesn't work that way. So our big challenge, according to Dr. DeGangi's work, is to choose the most powerful pain. And number three, we humans, we really like to change our circumstances when something's bugging us. We might change jobs or relationships or even where we live, 
But we don't really succeed in harnessing our emotional power until we understand that what is bothering us often comes from us, not our circumstances. And now this week, we bring back a book segment for you with our really good friend, Scott Ulster. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hey, Jesse, doing well. What have you read for us this week? Yeah, today I'd, I'd love to talk about a book called Determined by Robert Sapolsky. Okay. So tell us about Determined. So Sapolsky is a professor at Stanford. He's a uh, neurologist and a biologist. And his whole thing, he's he's been at it for some time, has been about how there really is no such thing as free will. Oof. I know. <laughs> it's a bummer. And <laughs> why are we making this show? Just curious. <laughs> well, it's not all doom and gloom, right? And, you know, there are a few caveats here, but stick with me. So the idea is that for, for him, and he is he's a scientist through and through, um, every decision that we make, every action that we take, it's because of something that happened before. Yeah. And that thing that could have happened before could have been a second before, a minute, days, years. In his case, he argues millennia, meaning our ancestors, the, the decisions they had to make, the conditions that they were in. Right. All sort of informed our biology. And these patterns, they stick around. They don't go anywhere. And so the way we respond to our conditions has been programmed uh, for all of those all of those years, whether we're alive or not. So I'm living out my program then when I choose, you know, the Subaru over the Toyota. Exactly. So there there's a machinery, right? There's biological machinery that's guiding you to your decisions. Mm-hmm. Now the thing is, it's the reason why I say it's not all doom and gloom is that there's this idea that first of all, our conditions can change. And we can change the conditions for others. So Let's take like a case where somebody is is brought up in conditions of poverty, right? And maybe they ultimately make poor life choices or tr- life choices that don't necessarily set them on the path of success. Right. We can change those conditions. We can improve those conditions for others such that they may not make those choices. We are capable of change even if our biological makeup kind of lends us to one path or another. The truth is, is that all of us respond to the the world as it is. Yep. But that world can change. Even if our choices may be sort of guided by all of the things that we inherited, whether it was our choice or not, and so much is obviously not in our power. But we still have power to create better conditions for others and potentially create better conditions for ourselves. It's not as if we have no control. It's just that a lot of the script is, according to Sapolsky at least, it is sort of set. Right. And I suppose this ability to have impact on conditions for others, well, that's the why. That's the why you're bringing us this book now, right, Scott? Absolutely. So, you know, he he goes into, and he being the author Sapolsky, he talks about uh, criminal justice reform. He talks about uh, improving health for others. There are so many things that we can do to create the conditions where even folks who are at a disadvantage can live a better life. Right. Um, So my favorite question, what's one small thing you are going to take away from this book? Mm, That's a good question. What what the heck can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you instead, having read this book, 
Do you feel like you're going to get to actually choose the next book you read or is it predetermined? <laughs> oh, man, this is actually funny because like as I was reading this book, I was like, wait a minute. Am I part of like this pattern here? Do I keep on choosing these books, you know, because they were chosen for me in advance? You know what? I'm going to I'm going to try my best. But you know what? This actually calls to mind one thing that I did really want to share with you is that as I was reading this book, it made me think of this concept that I remember from my school days called second naivete. Second naivete means that even if, let's say, free will is a myth, it's not real, and a lot of our choices are sort of uh, predetermined to, to one degree or another, we still have the ability to act as if we have that free will. Mm. Second naivete means that, yes, you may be aware that there are things that are out of our, our control or, or that thing that you held so dearly, uh, that myth, may not actually be accurate, but you can still sit with it. You can still use it and call it to mind. And so as I was reading Sapolsky, I was like, you know what? This is this is totally relevant. You know, we, we can still choose the best things that that come from believing in, in free will, even if we can recognize uh, the argument of this book. I love that. I love that, Scott. It's a hopeful place to land. And I look forward to having you back in the studio. Just maybe next time, Scott, just for a change, could you read something like really light that will yes. leave us laughing? Yes, you got it. <laughs> And now, as we consider office hours, I'm thinking back to our conversation today with Dr. Julia DeGange and how we harness the power of our own emotions. What's something you've learned that you might want to think about applying? Let's talk about it this week on Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll help you out. You can also join the conversation in our Hello Monday group. In fact, there's something we'd specifically like to hear from you. What's on your mind as you wind down the year? What do you hope to learn more of in 2024? You can post on our thread in the group. Your input will help us shape the show for next year. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Kadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps us embody our better selves always. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening, all.